Hi and welcome to Epicenter. My name is Brian Crane. And I'm Meher Roy. So today we are going to speak with Mark Olszewski and Rene Reinsberg, the two founders of Cello. So Cello is this really, uh, really ambitious, uh, really exciting kind of new layer one protocol that's focused a lot on usability, financial inclusion, and, you know, they've been live for a few months and there's a lot of traction around it. And it was really great to kind of talk with them and dive into the platform. Just a disclaimer before we go into the episode. So as, as listeners are aware, uh, Meher and I, besides doing episode, we also run a company called Course One. So with Course One, we are running a validator on Celo. So it's a proof of stake network and we're running a validator there. And we've also been building kind of a user interface for staking called Anthem. And that has now, like we're in the process of adding uh, kind of full support for Celo there as well. And we've received some funding from the Celo Foundation for for this work. So we just wanted to make that disclaimer up front. And now let's go to the interview. We're here today with Marek and Rene, uh, the two of the founders of Celo. So Celo is a project that we also from Chorus One, Meher and I have been involved in running validators in. And so it's a, a blockchain that recently launched and he has a lot of ambitions about, especially around financial inclusion. So I'm really excited to have uh, both Jan. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. We always find it interesting to dive a little bit into sort of, you know, what's your background? How did you get into blockchain and how did that lead up to Celo? Maybe Rene, can you start on what sort of your journey that led up to here? Not unlike uh, others who've been on your show before, I started my career in traditional finance at Morgan Stanley. Uh, I was working in fixed income capital markets, so spending a lot of time with derivatives and um, also spent some time in sort of the more international realm and did some stints with the World Bank local office in Caracas, as well as working and living in a bunch of different places where I sort of got firsthand exposure to what it means to maybe not uh, live in a place where you can take sort of a sound financial system for granted. And so sparked my curiosity, especially after Ethereum came out and seeing sort of the kind of concepts around programmability and applying that to money. And that was very fascinating. I have a CS background. I studied at the University of Toronto for my undergrad and then went to MIT for my PhD, where I focused on an area of research called deterministic multi-threading, which just very coincidentally is very relevant to paralyzing smart contract execution today on blockchains. And uh, along the way, I spent some time at Google and Microsoft Research. But then at MIT, uh, Rennie and I uh, actually met and out of a seminar taught by Tim Berners-Lee, uh, we started a linked data and machine learning company, which helped small businesses uh, better compete against the big guys. And that company did well. It got acquired. And uh, after a few years, uh, Rennie and I and a MIT professor that was advising us in this last company, uh, we got together to start Cello. For you guys, what are the biggest learnings from your previous company that kind of like shaping how you're approaching Cello? This is probably not just a learning from that company, but sort of a general thing that goes through life, you know, when you're building something, when you're creating something, you know, think about what you're, one, what you're actually kind of solving for, what's the solution you're trying to tackle, and then how are you doing that? 
And those are really two big kind of themes that influenced yeah, our journey so far. So one, start by doing a lot of research, spending a lot of time with you know the, the end users, ultimately the people that you think will want to use what you're building. And then two, spend a lot of time early on, especially thinking about what kind of organization you want to be. And I think the key lesson for us was to, even at the outset, Sepp, Merrick and I, you know, sitting down and, and laying out what are the values for the organization we want to build, what is sort of the long-term mission, what's sort of the North Star that can keep us honest as we're going through the you know ups and downs that just come with entrepreneurship. And so definitely that has helped us, I think, stay pretty focused and, and build something, hopefully that already early on, very quickly after our mainnet launch has led to big organizations adopting. This is one of the things that like stands out to me a lot is, you know, when you look at your website, blogs, all the material, it's, it's always so upfront, clear, and what's the long-term vision, what are the values? And I think that's most blockchain projects don't do as well. I mean, it's probably there, but it's not as articulated as much and brought to the forefront as much. So I think that's something that's really impressive about you guys. I was reading through the, um, the website a little bit before and, you know, I read somewhere that Zello's philosophy is based on uh, Charles Eisenstein's sacred economics. I'm curious, like, who's that guy and what's sacred economics? So Charles is a philosopher and he is indeed been very influential on work we've been doing. And, you know, I think we can maybe chat about some of the, the concepts that he introduced that we think was this technology can be brought to life at a, at a big scale. I think one thing maybe for people who are new to Cello and the Cello community, maybe let me just kind of lay out sort of the community tenants or the, the tenants that we've kind of set for the work that everyone is doing. And that, I think that helps kind of, in a way, make sure people have a sense for what Cello stands for, depend, regardless of where they're building and, and what kind of application they're building or how they're looking to kind of use the platform. And those four tenants are... Designing for all, big one for us, you know, you brought up financial inclusion, but I think it's it's less about just purely focusing on financial inclusion, but it's designing a system that is truly accessible to everyone. And I think by focusing on communities that are more excluded today, you actually have a shot at having ultimately something that that is accessible to everyone and can work for everyone. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is innovating on money, which is um, kind of in sort of the vein of, you know, programmable money. And I think this is where you see some of the, you know, ideas that Charles introduced in, among other things, his book, Sacred Economics. And Charles has been an advisor to Cello, which has been awesome. But I think when you look at the history of money, you see it hasn't really changed since the 1600s. And, and now we have this opportunity to really kind of actually change what money is and what it can, uh, the benefits it can bring to communities. And so, with that, looking at really revisiting a lot of the features of money. And of course, we're starting in a, in a much more pragmatic place, you know, stable coins, you know, digital kind of assets that uh, represent, you know, fiat currencies. But, you know, in the future, we see uh, currencies take different shape. And, you know, the concepts like natural asset-backed currencies are, are things that are really interesting to us. Related to that, striving for beauty, that's a tenet that is important, you know, when you create stuff like is it going to make the world it sounds maybe a little bit cheesy but a more beautiful place is it actually bringing things that uh will bring joy and value to communities and if you're someone who's debating whether they want to be part of this community i think seeing that and then thinking about the things that they want to build gives some orientation 
And the last one, and, and this is maybe one that does feel even more important in, in today's kind of times, is, uh, is about humility, embodying humility. That has helped us. You know, I think we, if you talk to us, you, you know this already. I mean, we don't pretend we know all the answers or have all the answers. And certainly like the undertaking, you know, the big mission for Cello to have a better uh, financial system that allows prosperity for everyone it's not something that a small group of people can just like build and roll out and like, you know, grow, but it is a team effort. It's an effort of like a growing community, a lot of people being involved all over the world to shape that and, and drive that. And so the best way to kind of go about it is by asking questions, by showing vulnerability and, and humility. Those are the, the broader the tenets for Cello. In addition to those tenets, does Cello have a separate vision statement for the future, some specific target you are looking to achieve? Or is it more that you want to achieve something that brings about financial inclusion and like more beauty in the world? And So Cello's mission at its core is to build a financial system that creates the conditions for prosperity for everyone. And uh, the way that we're doing that is by building a permissionless platform that makes financial tools accessible to anybody with a mobile phone. And so maybe for those also taking a step back, for those who are new to Cello, you know, what is Cello kind of concretely? Um, it's a proof of stake platform that is fully EVM compatible. I would say that there are three kind of key innovations that uh, help us kind of achieve this mission, each of which were really specifically chosen to make Cello more usable to someone using it via mobile phone. Cello has a like client, Plumo, which lets uh, mobile devices sync with the chain kind of near instantly. Uh, the current version that we've launched requires uh, about 17,000 times less data to sync than a kind of traditional SPV-based like client. And the soon-to-launch SNARK-based version of this will be 1.7 million times more efficient. And this allows anybody on a mobile phone um, to sync in a fully peer-to-peer -peer manner with the chain in a fully censorship-resistant manner. Uh, there's no need for something like Infura to be able to connect with the chain uh, from your mobile device. Secondly, Celo has a stable coin that's native to the platform called uh, Celo Dollars or CUSD. Uh, this is kind of algorithmic and crypto collateralized. I think currently there is about uh, just over 6 million CUSD in circulation. The network just launched and that number has been kind of growing steadily since the launch. Um, this is collateralized with around $220 million worth of crypto assets, which include uh, Celo, the native asset on the platform, Bitcoin, and ETH. And then critically, even though CUSD is implemented kind of as a token on the platform, um, you can actually pay for transaction fees with tokens on the Celo platform, so you can actually pay for transaction fees with CUSD. And then finally, Celo has uh, an on-chain PKI, which maps phone numbers or hashes of phone numbers to public keys and wallet addresses so that people can find each other really easily by phone number. And so this allows people to send payments to anyone in their contact list, even if they, the recipient hasn't even kind of created an account on the Celo network. And so these three things kind of taken in unison really allow us to build uh, really great mobile kind of experiences that are uh, ultimately accessible to anybody in the world. Isn't there friction associated with getting CUSD in the hands of underserviced people that Cello might otherwise want to serve? 
of course, when you introduce any new technology, you know, there's always the question, how do you actually get it out there? I think for us early on, we did spend a lot of time looking at what are the use cases that would most benefit from digital currency, particularly a digital currency that is accessible on just a smartphone, really. One use case, or I mean, there are many use cases, but one that particularly stood out and that I think is more timely than ever is, is cash transfers, right? And this is obviously they're the big programs that, you know, even the US government right now is running a big cash transfer in, in light of COVID. But obviously, you know, that if you look at the broad definition that includes also, you know, peer-to-peer remittances and, and other payments. And so uh, one way for us to think about that um, or, or think about it was like, okay, how do we make sure that everyone who is uh, currently operating in that world and that industry knows about uh, set of dollars and, and the benefit that it can bring? And in light of that, we actually, a while back, um, started you know, talking to organizations that do large-scale deployments, for example, around cash transfer, but also some of the other use cases the platform is powering initially. And so one example here, I'll make it more concrete, um, maybe is, is Grameen. So the Grameen Foundation, one of the biggest micro lenders, is actually using Cello Dollars and the Cello Wallet, the Valora Wallet that the C-Labs team has been building to deliver uh, COVID relief aid to hundreds of low-income families in, in the Philippines um, for them to get, then spend it on groceries and pharmaceuticals. And that's part of a, um, a bigger project funded actually by JP Morgan. And so for if you look at that, for most of the beneficiaries, um, this is going to be their first uh, digital wallet. So, you know, that's kind of already something that you have to think about. So when you think about the entire stack, right, you want to make that experience as easy as possible. It has to be as easy as someone sending a text or, you know, making a WhatsApp call. Otherwise, you're just not going to be able to be successful. But then secondly, you also want to make sure that it's actually, once it's on, on their phone, it's actually valuable. It's, it can be used, for example, at the local uh, stores, right? And so as part of the Alliance for Prosperity, which now has 100 members and organizations like Ramin, but also organizations that directly work with merchants or merchants themselves, are also uh, partnered on this. And so it's actually possible for the recipients to go into a local grocery store and, and directly pay with the wallet for groceries. And so... If you take this apart, there's obviously a lot of complexities there in terms of like, you know, things like custody and liquidity, right? And so you have to kind of think about this kind of holistically and and think about how do you bootstrap pretty much a global ecosystem. But the good news is that having a digital currency that's stable, accessible on a phone is such a game changer, both in terms of, you know, speed, efficiency and cost that it's worth kind of the investment, the upfront investment, even if it means setting up some additional kind of infrastructure. And that's a one-time investment. And once the ecosystem is in place, obviously, you don't have to do it again the next time. So that's really what we've been focused on. You know, in, in parallel to developing the technology, we've been spending a lot of our time on the ground with local organizations, doing a lot of user research and pilots, and quite frankly, helping some of the Alliance members do pilots. And I think that's led to a lot of the way we've built Cello, but also has actually led to some concrete uh, features, like what Merrick mentioned earlier, the ability to pay with Cello dollars as the first stablecoin on the platform for fees. Since I became interested in crypto and Bitcoin, which was in 2013, sort of mid-2013, this financial inclusion and, you know, like remittances and, you know, like banking the unbanked was always kind of there as this, you know, this is one of the great benefits of this technology. To be honest, I haven't like followed up that much with, you know, where did some of those projects go? But like I would say sort of my overall impression is that 
not like a lot has come out of that. How do you guys look at that? Like all of these previous effort or work, like were there results there? And what are the biggest things that you guys think they did wrong and that you guys are doing differently? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think Celo is built specifically for those use cases, but I think in order to build something that if I want to, you know, imagine we could get together in person and, you know, you would pay for my beer, you know, I would want to sell it the way I pay you back, right? And I don't want to necessarily kind of say that by building for cash transfers, you need to do too many things differently from building just a kind of general payments infrastructure, right? I think if you have a very kind of strong global payments infrastructure, then you can do things like cash transfer programs more easily. And I think a few things that were just not technically feasible led to this now being possible. And I think we're some of the first to take full advantage of that by combining some of the puzzle pieces. But we very much remember those things as well. And, you know, I think three years ago, I think the world just looked different in in some ways, but actually not much has changed in terms of the adoption, but the technology has advanced so much, right? And so I think where maybe things ended up taking a slightly different turn. I think for us, we saw, and, and Mary can, can speak to this, um, you know, given his background as well, you know, there's definitely a lot of excitement three years around, uh, you know, scalability and how do we like, you know, the CryptoKitties problem and how do we like make blockchains more scalable? And that drew some of the best people in the space into thinking about scalability, but much less uh, effort was uh, going into uh, usability and thinking about just some of these small kind of, you know, I'll call them tweaks now, but they're, you know, take still take a lot of work, but that actually ends up making the experience so that you and I could more easily send money between uh, two wallets. And, you know, I think once you have that basic infrastructure and you can bring kind of liquidity to markets kind of around the world, then you suddenly can see a lot of other infrastructure kick in, right? So Bidwage was another alliance member who recently joined is going to use uh, seller dollars and that can, you know, lead to sort of acceleration of sort of the gig economy and funding the gig economy. We did this really interesting project. We supported a company called Appen, another alliance member in Kenya around microwork. People were doing small tasks on their mobile phone and getting paid in seller dollars and then using seller dollars with that kind of the money they just received at a local store to pay for stuff, right? Now, imagine trying to do this on, say, Ethereum with like DAI, the infrastructure just hasn't been ready for that to be kind of a seamless experience if you want to do it, especially if you want to do it in a trustless manner. We didn't think it would happen so fast. So especially a lot of the light client work, we've starting Cello, we thought this could take five to 10 years to see some of that actually be feasible. And, and in many ways, like the great work that has happened in the cryptography community has accelerated that. And don't get us wrong, I think scalability is extremely important in kind of this new cohort of proof of stake chains that are launching this year. And Celo is is among them. It's a really kind of novel proof of stake protocol that uses a stake to elect hundreds of validators who then perform PBFT consensus. And in that regard, it's it's both extremely uh, environmentally efficient, but also highly scalable. But the it's not only highly scalable, it also works really well with mobile devices. It also allows you to send payments to someone even before they've created a public and private key pair and allows you to actually pay for transaction fees in multiple currencies, including the one that you actually want to send. And it's this combination of all of these things together that really makes Cello really, really powerful. 
maybe thinking back to to kind of that moment three years ago that Rene was kind of alluding to, I think one thing that Cello has done differently since then is getting to this solution, not by kind of thinking about, you know, what are the things that people will find important in three years? To be completely honest, we didn't know three years ago that these were the important features that you had to kind of build. We actually discovered them along the way by building Valora, Cello's um, kind of flagship mobile wallet. Uh, we were building it alongside the platform right from the get-go. And so very quickly we learned, oh, we're going to need to pay for transaction fees with tokens. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, really confusing to users. And, oh, we're going to need phone numbers as identifiers. People need a social network to kind of bootstrap off of and the kind of combination of everyone's contact lists across everyone's mobile phone is arguably the biggest kind of social network, kind of decentralized social network in the world. And so we wanted to tap into that to make it really easy for people to transact with people that are in their networks. All of these things we, we had to kind of learn along the way. Um, the Light Client's another great example. We tried syncing the Ethereum chain on uh, our mobile phones. And even with extremely kind of fast internet here in the US, it still took way too long. And so we put our heads uh, together and, and came up with kind of this really uh, novel snark-based Light Client protocol that really is just, it's amazing. When you first open the wallet, you... Uh, are asked to um, type in some basic kind of information to get started. And during that first screen, that's really all the time that it takes to sync with the chain. It always brings me so much joy just seeing uh, how quickly it syncs. And, you know, this was not something that, that, again, was obvious to us. And now that we've done it, in hindsight, it looks, you know, obviously very, very important. But now we're also finding that there's all these other benefits too. It turns out that uh, having an extremely efficient like client is also very useful for bridging and um, verifying kind of state across two chains. And so there's a lot of nice kind of serendipitous things that came out of that as well. And it's all thanks to kind of that very tightly coupled integration that we did with kind of the mobile wallet and the platform. I just, so this question is kind of in my back of my head and I was thinking before as well, with the ability to send funds to a mobile number, is this compatible with like privacy or let's say, could I figure out, okay, how many coins are associated with a particular mobile number, if I know that? This was a huge, huge technical challenge as well for us to overcome. If you simply hash phone numbers and, and keep that hash on chain, then it becomes pretty easy for someone to brute force all of the phone numbers that they might be interested in and look up kind of those mappings on chain to then find people's wallet addresses. And so the way that we get around this is actually through a um, kind of decentralized oblivious directory service, which um, uses some really interesting new threshold cryptography to serve salts that are used in combination with these phone numbers when hashing them in a way that is both decentralized, but also rate limited. And so whenever you want to look up, say, a wallet address of someone's phone number, you have to first make a request to kind of this uh, directory service. It's run by kind of tens of operators that are each using kind of the BLS 12377 elliptic curve 
to effectively create an oblivious uh, pseudorandom function that um, kind of generates a salt uh, so long as a kind of honest threshold of these folks acts honestly in response to that request. And crucially, uh, none of these folks can actually uh, themselves look up the salts of each of these phone numbers. They have to get a threshold of them to kind of work together to do that. And so, so long as uh, a threshold remains honest and um, rate limits, not just kind of the end users making these requests, but also these other node operators, then no single party in the system can actually uh, brute force and infer all of the um, hashes and their mappings to wallet addresses. This is really exciting. Uh, we actually have some really outstanding institutions and companies that are running the service and will be kind of making an announcement soon. So, okay, you can't brute force it that way, but let's say I know someone's specific phone number. Would that I then still be able to do that? In order to be able to kind of send money to people that are in your contact list, you can um, typically look up one phone number per transaction that you're making on the network, more or less. And so you uh, typically would want to save that for the person that you want to transact with. But you could, in theory, look up a very small number of people's uh, phone numbers. And the good news is that this threshold cryptography um, kind of oblivious directory can actually be used to to do a double opt-in as well, so that um, kind of in the future we'll have a mode where you can only reveal your uh, mapping to people who um, you explicitly have in your contact list. So you can have this kind of double opt-in. So that's something that we're working on today, but the reality is some people will prefer the other approach anyway. If you're a, kind of a small business and you're looking to get paid easily, then you're going to want to have your mapping kind of easily available to people who have your phone number. And so we've started off with kind of this initial offering, and then we're working on adding kind of this uh, double opt-in method that will be coming soon. I can understand the value proposition behind the ultra-efficient light client and the linkage with the phone numbers. But you have also chosen to put smart contracts into your blockchain. And not only that, you have specifically gone for these EVM smart contracts. And so what's the reasoning behind going for smart contracts in the first place? And then like, why specifically these EVM-based smart contracts? This may be kind of just having sort of the, the end user hat on and, and, and looking at some of the solutions that we want to see on the on the platform. But I think there's a lot of, and maybe coming back to, you know, Charles Eisenstein a little bit and features of money, but also some of the use cases kind of that were, you know, applications that we observed in the real world. And so one example that is interesting on one of the user research trips, we, in the team kind of in a, in a village saw like a kind of a lockbox that had a bunch of like physical locks on it, right? And so it was kind of the, you know, we like the community kind of um, savings kind of pot. And it was used to, you know, save money over time. And then at some point, like take the money and, for example, you know, invest in a new valve, for example. And so, uh, but in order to get the money, a bunch of people had to come together and insert their key and then open the lockbox, right? So kind of a, a real world multi-sig. And when you see some of that and you're like, oh, wow, you know, you could actually implement some of these, uh, you know, basic financial applications 
using, in some cases, pretty simple smart contract logic and bring more efficient tools to these communities. And that could be things like saving circles. It could be basic kind of uh, microinsurance lending applications. And, and so for us, it was always clear that we needed a way to easily allow folks to, from the beginning, build and launch some of these applications. And we're seeing that now. Some of the teams, um, I don't know if you guys have followed Cello Camp, which is super interesting, had, I think the first batch uh, had 250 teams um, from over 60 countries, Upright, uh, the Alliance member who just uh, announced uh, version two has been doing a phenomenal job with that. But there's a team among the finalists um, in this last, in this first batch, which was working on a peer-to-peer universal basic income. So a bunch of folks would pay into a pot um, or several pots, and then these pots would be paid out to people in a community at, for example, the rate of like a solid dollar a day. And that's super interesting, right? I mean, there's things that you just can't do easily today with traditional financial infrastructure, but with uh, some relatively straightforward smart contract logic, you can actually achieve that and roll that out and, you know, with fairly limited risk. Yeah, and maybe just to add to that, I think um, we were very um, kind of inspired uh, and excited by what was going on in the Ethereum community at the time. So much so that we we even implemented the majority of our protocol using system smart contracts. So the stability mechanism, the on-chain governance mechanism, the identity system Everything is implemented as solidity upgradable smart contracts that are ultimately owned by the governance contract. And we we were excited by uh, that method of development and um, by kind of that method of kind of dog fooding. And so we knew right from the get go that we we wanted a VM to be able to support that. I think at the time, I think there was a lot of excitement around Wasm. And it was kind of still in its infancy. Uh, and we are excited about Wasm. And we do see a, a future where we can upgrade to add support to Wasm, just like Ethereum has talked about uh, adding kind of eWasm support to, to kind of the 1.x uh, series of Ethereum. And we do see that kind of in our future. But for now, uh, we're fully EVM compatible, which also means that anybody in the Ethereum ecosystem who is interested in a platform that has a decentralized stablecoin built in, which you can kind of use to pay for gas, uh, kind of a built-in identity layer, great mobile kind of support. If there's anyone building dApps on Ethereum that... Um, and and where a transaction doesn't cost $20. <laughs> and where a transaction doesn't cost $20. You know, we are a solution that is really quite easy to migrate to uh, or to just deploy a second kind of version of your of your dApp onto. And we think that that's really powerful. In order to get to kind of those um, kind of solutions that, that Rene was kind of alluding to, uh, we need a rich ecosystem of, of dApp developers who um, have the expertise to create uh, correct, kind of safe, smart contracts. And, you know, there's a big community of those folks on the Ethereum ecosystem. And we have a solution that that is fully compatible with what they're used to. And maybe one one thing just to add to the you know like the transaction costs comment. I mean, it is true, right? I mean, if you if you think about, I mean, for anyone who is um, who is kind of uh, 
played a little bit and you know has done some yield farming um these these past few kind of weeks um you know it's it's very easy for the for the fees to add up to like tens if not hundreds of dollars with just a few uh transactions and if you think about like someone wanting to um you know just put like you know 10 20 50 dollars into the system and, and still participate and benefit from it right um it's just not economically feasible and we do feel, I think, one of the, you know, uh, I think reasons to be excited about what this technology enables overall, but also the way kind of token economics work, right? And and I think Jesse actually most, more, more recently really nicely articulated that uh, when he kind of announced this fund and talked about the ownership economy and giving, um, you know, kind of people agency and, and you know, and, and in a way reward them for participation. And I think yield farming is kind of a narrow example of that, but more, more broadly, I think it is, it is nice to see sort of, yeah, I think the ability for us and, and other kind of protocols in the space to, to do that and, and let early participants uh, benefit from, from ownership. Right. And so I think, for for that to kind of make economic sense, though, at small amounts, you you need kind of a you know you need sort of a, a more economical you know transaction fee model, and a better way to price price those transactions. So there's a lot of talk on in the Ethereum community right now about uh, finally implementing EIP fifteen fifty nine, and I think absolutely Ethereum should implement this, and I think Ethereum should actually just lift the implementation that that we have in Celo since it's already fully compatible with kind of the Go Ethereum code base. We knew from the get-go that we needed to have a better way of pricing transactions. And so, as with many things uh, on the platform, we were inspired by what others were doing, and we, we went ahead and implemented it. Now, if I if I think of like the Celo USD, there are like lots of different projects that are that are building decentralized stable coins of, with different designs, right? And usually the go-to markets are quite different. So for for Celo, it is it is financial inclusion. So banking the under underbank. Uh, for example, for something like Dai, it is the typical use cases when you want to leverage and get more access to some kind of position. So it is it is that a stable coin targeting some speculators that ha- that are rich in crypto and etc. Then you have Terra, so you have Terra USD. That's uh, that's targeting e-commerce usage in in South Korea. So pay using a stable coin, and there are probably other go-to market strategies for for stable coins. So is it correct to say that as Celo, like you have picked a go-to market strategy which is around financial inclusion, and kind of you will stick to it even if some of these other go-to-market strategies actually end up proving more lucrative in the short to medium term. Yeah, and maybe kind of, yeah, to, to unpack that a little bit. So there's there's the Celo, the protocol, the platform, it's open source, you know, permissionless, anyone can participate, build whatever they want. If you look at the kind of Alliance, 100 Alliance members and the, the teams, for example, building as part of Celo Camp and then probably teams that we don't know about, there is quite a range of applications and and what people are wanting to use this for now i think the the fact that we are optimizing for sort of a great mobile experience uh does gear this more towards sort of the means of payments use case but um i also like you know i think yeah i think why is why is die used in the way it's 
it's used today. I think it's, you know, probably also some kind of just historical kind of limitations. And if you could uh, transact Dymo easily um, peer-to-peer on a, on a phone, then maybe that's what would happen a lot more. And in, in some markets, you know, we've, we've seen people go through great lengths and, and use Dai that way in the absence of sort of uh, working traditional financial system, for example. And so I think longer term, you know, ultimately... There's definitely a place for for stable coins and for fiat backed stable coins. Um, if you if even if you read the initial white paper, I think that was for us always kind of the the first step in in a, in a series of steps towards kind of a, a rich ecology of of digital currencies. Um, and so we do see a lot of potential for for even some of the use cases that are you know that are being used that are, that stable coins are not being used for today. Let's put it that way. But, but ultimately, you know, I think what's already becoming clear is that there is potentially going to be a shift in the way kind of, you know, currencies, their monetary policies and what currencies will look like in the future. We actually, um, or the community, you guys, <laughs> you know, stood up uh, the Stellar Network uh, on, on Earth Day. And, you know, um, I think already at this point, there's uh, there's about 10,000 or so Stellar um, dollars that's that's gone to towards uh, Project REN sort of carbon offset, right? And and so I think the idea of Celo being uh, carbon neutral and and sort of the, the digital currencies on Celo being kind of more sustainable, even the ones back to fiat initially, but longer term, maybe truly introducing currencies that are backed by natural assets, right? And, and, and thereby promoting, for example, the planting of trees. That's really powerful. And I think that's not something that happens overnight or in a year or, you know, on a, on a sort of two year, three year horizon. But I think what is important to us and for the, from a community perspective is to put sort of the, the pieces in place to enable that. And I think that's what we're seeing. And so it almost, you know, I think the early use cases matter because they're about bringing kind of liquidity and sort of understanding and adoption and, you know, developer familiarity to all the communities around the world. But I think what's almost more important is, is this kind of long-term viable, right? And are we not just, I, mean, I think in some cases, you know, we have to start somewhere where it's not a massive leap for someone who doesn't care about crypto, right? Who just wants to send money to a friend, make that easy to then be able to kind of do the more ambitious stuff, which is actually, um, you know, reshape how kind of currencies uh, can work. And that's that's a longer journey. I think that's kind of what got us excited to start in the first place. And we're, we're on that journey now. And I think, even like very big organizations, governments are starting to kind of get excited about this. Um, and so we're, we're hopeful that it will happen. But yeah I, yeah, I would say maybe kind of more concretely to answer your question, I think it's great that there are different entry points and there are, I think, different ways to kind of bring more stable coins and, and, and solve kind of real world problems, whether that's in, in commerce and trading or in, in peer-to-peer payments. But um, ultimately, I think longer term, a lot of this will kind of become part of hopefully this the same the same ecosystem so maybe just briefly on this since we we kind of touched a bunch of times so for cusd uh, can you guys walk a little bit through how cusd works and like how you know the reserve is used to like you know guarantee maybe the price peg you know how you deal with the, the scalability of the system right which i think is a challenge for like for maker right where it's kind of hard to increase the supply yeah, do you guys mind expanding it a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So at a at a high level, the Celo dollars and and actually all future stablecoins that will be launched on the platform are backed by 
kind of the same over collateralized crypto asset reserve. And uh, the thing that is unique to Celo is that you can trade uh, one Celo dollar uh, for uh, one US dollar worth of Celo using a kind of on-chain DEX called CP Dodo, which is a kind of Uniswap style kind of automated market maker exchange that lives on the on the chain. And by being able to always exchange one cello dollar for one US dollar worth of cello, uh, if the price of CUS dollars or CUSD uh, deviates from one dollar on a centralized exchange anywhere in the world, that presents a arbitrage opportunity for you that allows you to, to instantly make money. And so this is something that doesn't exist with uh, something like DAI. If the price of DAI deviates from a dollar, you can't instantly make money off of that. To maybe if it's less than a dollar, you have to buy it and kind of wait for kind of the demand to go back up and then sell it for, for a profit. But you can instantly take an arbitrage opportunity that by doing so brings the kind of supply and demand uh, back to kind of the $1 peg. And so this is something that's, that's pretty unique and pretty, pretty novel with, with this design. Uh, it means that in all likelihood, the uh, stability of this asset, once it hits centralized exchanges, will um, hopefully match that of you know, centralized fiat-backed stablecoins because the way that those fiat-backed stablecoins keep their peg is using the exact same mechanism. People can always uh, buy uh, or redeem a fiat-backed stablecoin for a dollar uh, from the issuing entity. Uh, and so if the price ever deviates for a dollar, they can always take an arbitrage opportunity. And that's what keeps those prices kind of pegged on these centralized exchanges. And so that's the the kind of first i would say major um kind of idea behind the the me- mechanism and and just uh, just to understand how this mechanism works because i mean if if the reserve holds bitcoin right then i mean practically speaking how are you able to to transfer a bitcoin for dollar worth of bitcoin for a cusd yep no great question through on-chain governance, the community can kind of nominate a uh, entity to diversify a portion of this reserve into other crypto assets. And so the community kind of elected an entity that's been doing that over the past few months. Um, I think around 20 million now dollars worth of that $200 million reserve is now uh, held in, in other crypto assets. Longer term, we want this rebalancing to be done fully on-chain, fully automatically. Uh, and so we've already started working on cross-chain bridges to bring these other assets uh, onto Celo so that the reserve can automatically rebalance uh, without the need for this um, kind of nominated entity. And uh, maybe final question on this. If you, if you contrast this to, let's say, Maker... Do you, what do you see as the biggest maybe advantages and what are, are there some disadvantages of the Celo stability system versus theirs? Yeah, I think the, the big advantage is that the biggest advantage is that there is a mechanism by which you can make money if the price ever deviates from, from the peg. 
which motivates arbitrages to take that opportunity and to kind of restore supply and demand to, to make sure that the peg is maintained. And we've already seen this happening. There's Hummingbot has already added support to their arbitrage um, software, and people are already running Hummingbot to, to kind of maintain the, the CUSD peg. And while CUSD isn't yet on centralized exchanges, you can look at the implied price on the on-chain exchange, and it's been absolutely um, rock-solid stable. I think the most it's deviated in the last week is 0.1 cents uh, up and down. So it's, it's keeping that peg really well. And then the second, I would say, big advantage is that the supply of CUSD is tied almost exclusively to the demand for it and not for the demand of borrowing a stable asset and collateralizing that loan with something like uh, ETH or, or another crypto asset. And so uh, I think time and time again, we hear that DAI is very hard to come by, that there's not much liquidity, uh, and that uh, likely is because of this kind of imbalance between the desire to make DAI versus the actual demand for a uh, fully decentralized stable crypto asset. And so that's also a big, uh, interesting advantage as well. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So if I have some asset, let's say it's uh, it's Ether or it's Bitcoin, and there's a bridge that exists to Celo, how do I get CUSD for my asset? What is the issuance protocol? Yeah, just maybe to, to jump, it's kind of related to this this question. We can kind of do the, the technical walkthrough as well. But I think at a, at a high level, I think the idea is to kind of decouple the generation of stable value assets from the use of stable assets, right? And so if you're uh, if you're someone who is looking to, you know, start paying uh, salaries uh, in in settled dollars or or make a make a payment or use it for sort of the treasury of, of your kind of company and kind of just holding a stable value uh, asset on the balance sheet, right? You, I, I don't think we want to kind of um, have sort of ultimately the users of those digital assets kind of um, have to worry too much about the creation of the digital asset, but there should be a way to kind of based on the demand, right? To um, basically have to supply, kind of follow the demand in a way. And that's kind of what, what Merrick is highlighting. And I think that is a big differentiator because, you know, here what happens is the by by getting sort of a uh, a feed an oracle feed off sort of the uh, the price of cello dollars, um, or or actually yeah, by getting kind of a sense for what the demand is for for cello dollars, right? The the protocol will programmatically adjust the supply, and that can lead to kind of expansions and contractions that um, basically then kind of just reflect what is going on in sort of the cello economy. And the nice thing is when you kind of uh, expand that from sort of a single kind of a stable asset kind of world into a multi, multi-asset world, right? Where suddenly you have other stable coins, once packed to the euro, the Swiss franc, the Kenyan shilling, the Mexican peso, or maybe uh, once packed to kind of basket of goods or, uh, or, or commodities or, 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 other, or other assets. And then being able to to look at this kind of uh, economy holistically and and kind of look at the the flows even between assets, right? So you could you could see a you know an expansion in 
in cello dollars that goes hand in hand with a contraction in, in cello euros. And then rather than worrying about the mechanics of um, sort of, you know, doing a rebalancing and a kind of an adjustment of um, against the reserve, you could, you could see those uh, kind of happening directly at the stable, uh, stable value asset kind of level. And that's really powerful. And that's, um, you know, in a way brings additional benefits to making um, from a liquidity and from sort of just a, uh, you know, market perspective uh, in, in providing these assets to the people that want to use them. So that's, I think, yeah, the idea is to really, in a way, separate the adoption and sort of people using cello dollars from sort of the protocol kind of uh, adjusting the, the supply kind of over time. That makes sense. And the difficulty really is bringing these other assets onto, uh, onto the cello network. Uh, building trustless cross-chain bridges, this is a very difficult uh, endeavor. Obviously, we've seen what's, what's happened with TBTC recently. Um, this is a incredibly difficult yet important um, piece of infrastructure that I think the whole ecosystem has to get right uh, in the coming years. We're definitely very excited that Celo has a very efficient-like client because it does make things a little easier, especially if you want to do them in a fully trustless way. Um, but it's still still a big endeavor. And so to that end, where uh, C-Labs is, is extremely excited to be acquiring uh, the team behind Suma to come join kind of C-Labs to, to work on these bridges. One of the nice things about having a mechanism that has demand for kind of these assets already built in is that it's it's easy to kind of invest in building these bridges uh, even before it's obvious that there'll be uh, a lot of utility for them. I think the the fact that the stability mechanism will be buying up these assets means that the utility will be there. And maybe just a off the record, we didn't mention this before, but by the time that this goes live, that announcement will be public. So figured we could mention it here, but please keep it to yourselves until then. Congratulations. That's very exciting. Well, let's, let's move a little bit. So, I mean, Cello has been live for, you know, a few, a few months now, like what's happening so far, what's happening with the network? Like what are some projects uh, that you guys are excited about and, you know, what are people building? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we launched on, so kind of the Genesis block was on Earth Day, um, which is April 22nd. And uh, following that, there were a series of governance proposals that basically brought more and more functionality to the protocol, including the launch of the stability protocol and, and ultimately Cello dollars. So that's been, that's been uh, kind of live and up and running for, for a few weeks. And, and so, you know, I think a lot of the early work really is, uh, you know, kind of collaborating with other organizations that are building and integrating um, Cello Dollars or the, the, the platform more broadly. And some of that is, is happening on, on Testnet. You know, I think you, for those who followed the, the Cello Camp demo day, there were some, some exciting, exciting demos uh, there that have already been built. And then, you know, some are kind of um, about to be announced. Um, so, you know, it's not our, not our place to announce them. Um, but it's great. I think a lot of the early use cases really are around just bringing some of the basic uh, financial use cases to places that don't have kind of, you know, the best financial infrastructure, 
or um, where there is kind of a, a massive benefit in terms of the the cost um, enabling, you know, particularly micro payments, whether that's around uh, the earn use case, so people earning digital assets, digital currency, fellow dollars uh, in return for doing small tasks um, and doing so, you know, paying, you know, less than a cent in, in transaction fees and then being able to redeem those balances at kind of merchants or local stores or online or, or sending kind of oh, making peer-to-peer payments. Uh, PesaBase, who was the, the winner of Cello Campus, uh, for example, you know, has been building a solution for, for African kind of migrants to send money back and is um, integrated with uh, M-Pesa, which is a kind of mobile money service in, in Kenya. So that's really exciting. Of course, there's the C-Labs uh, wallet, uh, Valora, that, that Merrick mentioned. So, you know, currently we're, we're giving the Cello community early access. So if you're interested in learning more, um, that's at valoraapp.com to, you know, basically play with that. And, and, you know, I think with everything, with all of the applications, feedback is always welcome. So if you, uh, if you use some of the products, um, please reach out to us or the team that's building them and, and give them feedback. I think this is kind of where very early, obviously, just after launch. And a lot of these applications have just run on testnet for a few months. And so uh, feedback is definitely appreciated. But yeah, I think uh, generally it's all about, you know, bootstrapping the ecosystem, um, starting, you know, with kind of uh, mechanisms for allowing end users organizations to more easily cash in, cash out. And yeah, I think for us, the big you know, the big kind of pieces that are that are still to come, obviously, are around uh, enabling, you know, enabling kind of uh, a world where, you know, no matter where you are, you have easy access, the easiest possible access to cello dollars. I think this was Mir's point earlier, right? I think um, the even the on-chain cost may be kind of sub one cent, right? You still will face cost in the, in, in the real world and actually um, cashing in, cashing out. And so that's, you know, when you think about kind of go-to-market, the true cost of a remittance on Celo is, is still higher than than sub one cent, obviously. Um, and so, I think there there are ways of kind of solving that is by bringing more people into the fold that integrate Celo dollars directly, so you can natively stay in the asset as you then kind of use the funds you receive to pay for goods or or services, um, but also kind of you know have um, the maximum number of, um, you know, partners integrated so that that kind of ultimately over time brings down, brings down the cost more. If you look at sort of what's ahead, like what are the most important like milestones and, you know, improvements that are still to be done on the seller platform? One big improvement that, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning is upgrading our like client protocol to the snark based version. The, as I mentioned before, the, the current version is already about 17,000 times uh, more efficient than an SPV-based like client, similar to what exists on Bitcoin or Ethereum. And with this uh, upgraded system, will be around 1.7 million times more efficient. And to get there, uh, we'll be doing a really quite massive Powers of Tau ceremony with kind of 2 to the 27 powers uh, over the BW6 curve, which is uh, a very big elliptic curve. And so this will require people to contribute a few days of computation, which means that we have to paralyze the whole ceremony using optimistic pipelining. So that'll take uh, only weeks instead of uh, months. And you can think of this as a massive 
pre-computation step uh, that will let the protocol create proofs that, in effect, compress uh, a large number of headers into just 500 bytes, which will then allow um, very low-end kind of devices to sync with the chain in a fully peer-to-peer permissionless manner uh, near instantly. And so that's really exciting. Um, it'll be quite a, an interesting ceremony. And if you're interested in contributing, please come visit the Plumo channel in the Celo Discord server, which is uh, reachable at chat.celo.org. Uh, once again, that's the Plumo channel on the Discord server. Yeah, for my maybe just one one call out, especially to kind of the builders out there. Um, you know, I think the current alliance um, has a reach of about 500 million people, kind of all around the world. And you know, obviously that's uh, that's a big number, but you know, um, we have more than six billion smartphone subscribers uh, in the world, and and so really, I think the promise you mentioned this earlier as well, right? The promise of cryptocurrencies and you know for for just making the world a better place and kind of having more seamless financial system uh still you know i think it's the same promise we had three years ago and it's likely not going to um, move all that much in the next three years but i think there's some the momentum is definitely picking up and from our conversations uh with people kind of all over um i think it's exciting to see kind of the the things people are are looking to build and Oftentimes what can um, get in the way is not necessarily like a technical roadblock, but it could be, you know, just having a conversation with someone else who's building something similar or easier access to funding. And and I would just, you know, say to anyone out there who's, who's building something in sort of the financial space and to, to reach out. And, you know, we have, we're a very welcoming community. There are many ways to kind of... Um, have a touch point, get involved. Discord is obviously a great, great place to start. There are programs like the one Upright is running, you know, CelloCamp uh, applications are opening up for, for sort of the, the, the second cohort. Um, we, um, as C-Labs are, are, you know, doing a lot of collaborations kind of all over the play, all over the world. And, and so, yeah, I would just invite everyone to join in. You know, I think back to Merrick's point about how easy it is um even for people who are currently have have an integration life on Ethereum, you know, think about this as expanding kind of to uh, to a very different audience, to kind of a mobile first audience. Maybe kind of see very different kind of use cases for for sort of your DeFi product. But I think yeah, we're um, we're definitely excited what sort of the next year can bring, and you know, less than us kind of necessarily driving driving that. We want to be there to support a lot of the in-market kind of use cases. Um, and so please do feel, uh, or please do feel free to reach out if you're, if you're building something in market. Yeah. Thanks so much guys for, for coming on. I mean, I've, uh, for us, it's been, uh, it's been great to, to sort of be a part of this and it's been really impressive how, you know, there's this community that has come about, uh, in Celo and, you know, it's very active, very vibrant. So I can only second that that's definitely worth, uh, Checking out, I'm super excited about you know like, uh, I mean I was I was I was kind of trying out. Mark sent me an invite for the the app, so I was playing out a little bit as much as as it it was possible. But design is very beautiful, so I'm excited to see when when I actually be able to use that for some um, 
some some things build on Cello. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely, yeah, it was great to be here. Meher, what did you think of the interview? It was interesting to go through Cello's how Cello approached building the company and choosing the set of technologies that uh, that they focused on. I was somewhat unsatisfied at our discussions around the stability mechanism and how how Cello dollars are kept stable. And I wish we would have done better there. But yeah, c'est la vie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this thing is these mechanisms are so complex, right? And then you almost have to to dedicate like a full episode if you really want to de- go into that. And uh, so, I mean, I, I remember that from previous podcasts too, where like that's kind of something that's hard to cover in a satisfactory way, you know, if you want to if you want to do a comprehensive overview of the project. I think the interview works well to give an idea of the problem statement Cello is after and what are the technical solutions they have adopted to provide a good solution to that problem statement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I also find interesting too is like with Cello, you know, you have uh, both Marek and Rene being like experienced entrepreneurs, like kind of coming into that, you know, with the experience of having built a company. And since you see just like how totally different like that approach is from, you know, the approach of like a Cosmos or Polkadot or Ethereum or, you know, they're like such a... Because they're they're thinking about like users going to interview people, starting with building like a mobile app and then sort of reverse what does the blockchain need. Whereas those are so much more like a little bit detached and technology focused uh, projects that, you know, have really have so far been the predominant, you know, crypto networks, of course, uh, Celo you know, sellers here, a new one. And of course, they're not the only one, right? There's more teams that have kind of taken a similar approach to building blockchains. I'm I'm really curious also, like, how is that going to play out? And who's going to, you know, are there particular, you know, are we going to see that you have this, you know, new generation of like founders that came in that, you know, came with like massive amounts of VC money and that ended up building the superior thing? Or will you have more of this more old school crypto uh, people that, you know, maybe started early on and took a different route? You know, will they kind of survive and prevail with their approaches? Right. But, you know, like Cello is this is this weird mix because I think what Cello does really well is, you know, these user interviews and all of these features targeted towards the, the end customer, as you mentioned. But on the other hand, their like their engineering decisions are also oftentimes like really great. So, I mean, the kind of I think Cello Cello is really good at picking you know the right cryptography, interesting cryptography for their chain. They have they have one of the proposals which scales up their consensus algorithm to a million validators. Right right now it's I think a hundred or two hundred, but. They want to scale it up to a million validators. That's a very interesting algorithm. Even the way they do uh, linkages between mobile numbers and addresses has quite quite a lot of advanced cryptography in it. So it's almost this team that has a lot of like end user focus combined with some heavy engineering capabilities. So 
yeah and plus they have they have the vc money from from Andreessen Horowitz and all of these big vc firms so they have a lot of the raw materials to make make something successful personally i am a little less convinced about their about their use case uh, so maybe i'd like to get your thoughts on that i mean what do you think about this starting point for a stable coin which is to think about remittances and financial inclusion rather than rather than like be something like a maker or a tether which is building a stable coin for exchanges or speculation do you think that's a good starting point actually for a stable coin today yeah i think it is the right starting point for them I mean, first of all, I think it's the thing that's really aligned with their mission and what they want to do. So I think that's where they should focus. And of course, the other thing is too, that if you look at stable coins today that are successful, I mean, you have uh, Tether, of course, and, uh, and of course, Tether is like, you know, first of all, it was created by an exchange. It's very deeply ingrained in the whole exchange infrastructure. It has like a massive head start. And then you have another one, which is USCC, which is Coinbase, and they're pushing that. And they're, of course, a very powerful company. And, you know, they're really having traction today uh, on Ethereum, right, as ERC-20 tokens. And so that's a hard thing for seller to compete in, right? Like they, they're on their own chain. So CUSD today bridges, as they've pointed out, are kind of, not there yet. Uh, so they're at a disadvantage from that. They have very strong competition there. So I think it's it's good and the right thing that they're focusing on something different. And I think it's smart to go for for this financial inclusion cases and, and this accessibility thing because who else is doing that? And, you know, it's been recognized and it's been discussed, you know, as I kind of mentioned in the show, for many, many years, always, oh, crypto, that is the thing that crypto is going to do well. But there were maybe some attempts at this. You know, I think there were maybe some Bitcoin companies that attempted to, like, get, you know, Bitcoin used in developing countries. There were, I think, like Stellar at some point, or there were some some other crypto networks that tried to, like, tackle this. Um, but, you know, so far, nobody's done it successfully. Uh, and... There's maybe various reasons for that. There may be some things around execution. Maybe they were too early and the technology wasn't there yet. Maybe some of the technical issues and usability issues that that the seller team is addressing is also a reason. So I like the seller strategy. I think it's a it's a good one, and I'm glad somebody's doing it. You know, somebody's really trying to make something that, in the end, people are gonna find useful when they're you know, just on the mobile phone in, you know, developing countries. My skepticism is essentially whether they'll be able to reduce the friction of crypto radically enough that it makes something like CUSD a better alternative than all of the remittances and money transfer services that are there there in the world. So, yeah, if if it can, probably, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great market to start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, that's uh, hard to know, and that's definitely difficult. And especially if you, if maybe we're gonna have things like Libra come in and Facebook and uh, and you know some of those companies that already have a massive reach, because that's, I mean, that is the fundamental challenge, right? That right now, Seller doesn't have 
They don't have distribution. I mean, they have this seller, you know, this alliance for prosperity. You know, I guess they have companies in there that do have big reach. So if they can actually convert those companies to to functioning as distribution, you know, maybe that 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 would be very promising. But like right now, right, like seller doesn't have, yeah, it doesn't have the distribution. So then it's you know, it's maybe hard work to find some use cases that like, you know, really good enough, working well enough, and that then can kind of like kick it off and get traction. So what surprised you the most in this interview? I don't think I had many surprises because I was kind of familiar with the project already. I'm not sure. What about you? I was just surprised at how... Yeah, single-minded they are about the remittances and money transfer and payments use case. Like, I always thought, like, when I look at Cello, I, I used to always think of, like, a project that's, like, you know, this is a startup central bank of some kind. And the, the main thing is, you know, like, how the monetary policy works. But talking to them, I kind of realized that, you know, like, their focus is so much on the end user. And... It's almost like the monetary policy is kind of, it's an interesting component, but it's not the centerpiece of their thinking. Maybe that was, that was a little bit surprising to me, but in, in hindsight, you can see that from their website and their, and their communications that this is a, this is a team that's single, it's very focused on, on that particular use case. Yeah. Cool. Well, any final thoughts? No, I'm I'm generally like looking really looking forward to what their light client can do. Like as as somebody that's you know like building bridges uh, as part of Chorus One, Cello appears to be the project which has the most beautiful light client, and it 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 feels like the project that you want to build a bridge to because it's going to be easy on you <laughs> to build a bridge to Cello. So I'm I'm really. Uh, I am personally interested in seeing how this light client evolves and how other projects copy copy their light client. Uh, it's it's really like one of the most interesting innovations that uh, that the project has done. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Then thanks so much, Meher. It was fun. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.